This week on The Other Side, the bleeding obvious escapes our dopey leaders yet again. If you give youth criminals a slap on the wrist and let them go every time they commit serious crimes, they'll commit more serious crimes. It's not rocket science. We'll talk getting back to basics on crime with a former Aussie Premier. If the Vladimir Putin and Tucker Carlson interview left you scratching your head about the Ukraine-Russia war, we've got a great update and summary for you. Two years in, where are things at and how will this horror end? We're going to recap the greatest speech ever made at the WEF annual Davos talk fest. And the US Republican Party takes new steps to end the lie that the January 6th protests in Washington back in 2021 were an insurrection. G'day Brisbane, g'day Newcastle and g'day Australia. This is episode 301 of The Other Side for the weekend commencing Friday, February 16, 2024. I'm Damien Curry. Welcome back. Well, I hope you had a great Christmas and New Year and Australia Day break. This is the show that declares its bias right up front. We are free market, free trade, free people, classical liberals. We don't believe the government should fix everything and parent us. And we know that wealth is created and more importantly, poverty is alleviated when people are free to do their thing and own and control the fruits of their labour and services. Strong opinions will be expressed on this show uh, and we want you to disagree occasionally and most of all, be challenged. It's essential that you don't expect to agree with everything we say. If you do, you will definitely be disappointed, and we don't want that. Our goal is to present to you a different perspective or perspectives that you might not hear in the mainstream Aussie media, which is very left-wing a lot of the time and extremely shallow almost all of the time. But not everyone on the centre-right side of politics agrees with everything either, especially these days. So we're here to kick ideas around. Anyway, let's kick off the year. Lots went on over the break and there's a lot to get into in the show this weekend. The cold-blooded murder a fortnight ago of a 70-year-old Queensland grandmother in a car park at an Ipswich shopping centre, allegedly by a 16-year-old offender for no apparent reason, has sent shockwaves across the nation. Why was this one so chilling? Because it reflects the absolute disregard for human life and sense of complete impunity of young offenders. We've spent so much time trying to rehabilitate kids and avoiding detention that we're neglecting rule number one of good government and good policing. Keep the people safe from serious violent crime and butt out of almost everything else. That must override any good deeds we might want to do or sympathies that we might have for kids who offend. As the Queensland opposition leader David Crisafuli said last week, we have created a generation of untouchables. Kids who wrongly believe that they can do whatever they like and will never be punished. Why? Well, partly because of a stupid law brought in by Labor that judges must use incarceration, detention and jail only as a last resort when dealing with youth crime. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that if you show greater leniency to juveniles, you will encourage more juvenile crime. And gangs controlled by older criminals using kids to do their dirty work for them. But our idiot politicians managed to miss that obvious side effect. The stats on youth crime in Queensland and around Australia are out of control. 
And the main offence is violence. Violence. Followed by theft in number two place. Great. You fail to keep your people safe from wanton violence, dear leaders, and you can do anything else in government you want. You're never going to get re-elected. But far from thinking this is terribly important, Queensland's Premier, Stephen Giggles-Miles, has been caught out chuckling about the problem as if it's just some kind of political game. This was his response to a serious and important question from Sky News Queensland Chief Reporter Adam Walters this week. To the Queensland Media Club, would have been noted uh, by more than a few, including the people of those communities. Premier, I'm sure you can see the last two summers have been bookended by the murders of young mother, Emma Lovell, and just three days ago, grandmother, Violene White. Wipe that infantile grin off your face, you absolute child. Disgusting stuff. Then this, again, in Parliament just a few days ago in response to a serious question from Queensland LNP opposition leader David Crisofulli. Will the Premier support the LNP and victims and open courtrooms today? I call the Premier. Well, um, Mr. I'd love to know what's so damn funny. This is the calibre of our nation's leaders. He's the Premier of our third biggest state. What is happening to this country? Anyway, the grieving daughter of Violene White, the grandmother who was fatally stabbed in Ipswich two weeks ago, says promises from leaders are too little too late. Sydney McAuliffe says politicians simply have to stop being soft on this stuff. Joining me now is someone who knows a thing or two about handling crime, former Queensland Premier Campbell Newman and regular on the other side. Campbell, thanks very much for joining us once again. First of all, do you have any advice for Premier Miles? Yeah, uh, just in a few words. Take this seriously. It's yeah. not a laughing matter. It's no. not a laughing matter at all. Uh, and indeed, the problem for the Premier is he has viewed this as a political issue to be managed as opposed to a really important community safety issue that has to be dealt with and solved. There's three parts to this problem really, Campbell, isn't there? There's the policing side, the social work and the criminal justice side. Uh, mm -hmm. the courts and, and, and punishment part. I want to quickly get your thoughts on all of them. But, uh, you know, first of all, the, the criticism and the, and the thought about this recently is focused on the policing part. Um, what, what are we doing in terms of policing? Is enough happening? And I think we can extrapolate. We'll talk about Queensland, but obviously this applies all around the country. Um, what, what, what do you think in terms of policing, how we're doing? Well, I believe that um, the police commissioner needs to do a better job. Um, and it pains me to say that because I know uh, the commissioner and uh, in the past I regarded her quite highly. Um, when I was premier, uh, she was appointed as the fire commissioner uh, because she was felt to be the person who could go into the Queensland Fire uh, Service and actually sort out a few important issues. The appointment of a police commissioner is something that can't be uh, unraveled easily by a government. You don't just sack a police commissioner. Um, and so the position comes with that authority, that responsibility, but also security of tenure. And what I'm getting at is that the commissioner has a responsibility to protect the people of Queensland. The commissioner, therefore, has, if you like, um, the opportunity to stand up, speak up and demand the, the resources, uh, the manpower, and the laws and changes to the actual youth justice system to allow her and her officers to do her job. I haven't seen her do that. Right. 
Okay. So she needs to, first of all, make that call. What we need is the police resources to be uh, diverted from uh, some of the things that they normally do, which are important uh, community safety issues, such as RBT uh, and uh, you know, speed traps, etc. That should, for a, mark, for a period of time, uh, that should be probably wound back a bit and the resources instead put into dealing with, with youth crime and having police patrolling the streets of our cities and towns through the wee small hours, apprehending uh, young people who are just wandering around, um, you know, at 3am and actually sort of, uh, you know, essentially searching them for weapons and making sure they're not up to anything. And, you know, it, that, that's, that's something the Commissioner could be and should be doing right now. You know, I just make the side comment that, you know, the police were very effective during COVID across Australia in <laughs> locking, locking uh, law-abiding Australians in their homes and, you know, sort of restricting them to their own states. They've also been very good the last 30 or 40 years at sort of levying huge fines on everyday Australians, you know, doing 67 kilometres an hour in a 60 zone, for, a, for example. All right, I so we get the kids. We get the kids. We, we've got them in 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 custody or apprehended. Um, the reoffending statistics for serious crime, so that the reoffenders from the serious crime cohort are very high uh, for youth offenders. So are the courts and the criminal justice system then failing us after the police have done their job? Absolutely. And here's the thing. And People often do a double take when I say this, but the Goss Labor government were elected in 1989. Uh, it's now you know, well into 2024. Uh, so in that entire period, over 30 years, there's only been five years of uh, LNP government. So the system that we have today in Queensland, um, the laws, uh, the, the processes, uh, the way the whole youth justice uh, thing works, um, the judges, the magistrates, the youth workers, uh, the officials who run the system, it's all uh, from the Labor Party. It's interesting the Premier has decided to have a shot at magistrates and, you know, I can sort of understand where he's coming from given some of the, the actions and decisions of magistrates, but the Labor Party have appointed them. They're, you know, frankly, they're their people where if, if, they, if they're doing something wrong and they're caught out for it initially, then we have these diversionary programs then maybe the graduation from that is if you keep going, you go to these boot camps. Now, Labor Party ended boot camps that we had just started as trials when we were in office, take them out to uh, remote areas of this state, have grown-ups in charge, give them a challenging uh, program uh, to, to actually uh, perhaps uh, get them thinking about other things, get them away from social media, their own networks, if they do uh, re-offend, then we have a youth justice system that is, and I'm going to say this, uh, it's about punishment and the protection of the community. Now, well, this, this you know, seems to away, be... Any, 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 it's a trigger warning for any lefties that might be watching this because apparently you're not meant to punish people these days. It's a strange idea, I know. Most people would not... Most hard-working, law-abiding people would shake their head and go, what? I thought it was about a punishment. No, 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 that's, that's not what the left-wing academics believe or the left-wingers no. that run the system. Um, it's just about, it's about other things. And, punishment and then they, and then they wonder why the kids have got this idea of impunity, you know, <laughs> that they can't be punished um, and they behave that way. And we have this group, as David Chris said, of untouchables 
uh, of kids because the the brazenness with which we're seeing a lot of the car theft. I mean, this modus operandi uh, of these kids seems to be that they steal a car. You know, brazenly will do it in broad daylight. Mm. They don't well, care if the people are home. Mm. What, 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 well, let me been... well let me tell you what happened in our own street only last week. Uh, we had a group of uh, young young uh, teens come into our street uh, in a stolen car, and that was all captured on CCTV for our from our house and adjoining houses. They proceeded to case houses up and down the street. They tried to break into the other neighbour's house, next-door neighbour's house, and then further down the street, about 100 yards, they broke into the house. Mum and kids were there in the house asleep that night. This is about 3am. They went around, roamed around the, around the premises, found the car keys, stole the family's full drive. Now, Dad happened to be away interstate. Now, how horrific... You know that, that this is going on. I mean, it, it's just it, it was it was unheard of beyond three or four years ago. It just didn't happen. Now, again, we've got a premier and a Labor regime who've been in charge for um, nine years now. It's their problem. And we go back to where we started this interview. The premier needs to stop giggling about it. Needs to stop. Um, treating it as a political issue to be managed and actually do something. Yeah. Campbell Newman, thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it. We'll catch you again on the show soon. Well, speaking of people on the right side of politics not agreeing on everything, holy cow, did that Tucker Carlson interview with Vladimir Putin stir things up or what? I'm all for Tucker, a big fan. Uh, and he has every right to interview Putin. All that hoo-ha from the cancel culture censorship-loving modern left in the US saying that he shouldn't even be doing the interview was just ridiculous. Plenty of dictators and authoritarian leaders have been interviewed by Western journalists over the decades. But personally, and here's where you might disagree, I really am a bit worried about how fast some conservatives have decided that Vlad is a good bloke all of a sudden. He isn't. He's a murdering big government, big state, centralised control, authoritarian dictator commie. He's not a nice bloke. Just because we don't like Biden and the corruption around Ukraine, and we might be sceptical of the motives of the US and the CIA and the deep state bureaucrats and the military industrial complex, does not mean we should start thinking Vladimir Putin is some kind of hero. He knows what we're thinking and he's playing us. Here's how the BBC saw it. Vladimir Putin was asked by Carlson whether he'd invade a NATO country such as Poland. Can you imagine a scenario where you sent Russian troops to Poland? Only in one case, if Poland attacks Russia. Why? Because we have no interest in Poland, Latvia or anywhere else. Why would we do that? We simply don't have any interest. Now, that's important because Putin's expansionist intentions are the core of why Ukraine's leaders in Kiev want to join NATO, get closer to the West and separate the country more from Russia. That pivot to the West is what sparked Putin's invasion almost two years ago. Look, let's be clear. Tucker Carlton didn't set up an interview with Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin decided he wanted to address Americans, particularly conservative Americans, and he chose to do it through Tucker Carlson. And good on Tucker for jumping at the opportunity. Nothing wrong with that. 
The Democrats and the US mainstream media's ridicule of Carlson for speaking with the dictator was dumb, and it played right into Putin's hands. It amplified Putin's preferred narrative, that he's the victim of some kind of conspiracy of censorship, a misunderstood leader being silenced by the evil deep state of the USA. Given the state of America right now, this narrative plays into some hard truths. The US is a nation that does have a kind of deep state bureaucratic and legal class that's operating more politically than they should in a manner that's out of touch with the people and their elected representatives. The country's once fairly objective legal system and police enforcement have descended into a machine of political lawfare with a glaring hypocrisy between the get Trump at any cost mentality and the protect Biden at any cost mentality. Trust in the mainstream media has never been lower and with very good reason. The American landscape is ripe for Putin to play his hand and push his false victim narrative. Putin knows the cynicism with which conservatives and libertarians in America now view their own government. So who better to give the big interview to than the man who symbolises this giant middle finger to the establishment? The rebel who was apparently axed by his own conservative network for speaking truth to power too often, Tucker Carlson. Our senior United States senators from the state of New York, Chuck Schumer, said yesterday, I believe, that we have to continue to fund the Ukrainian effort or U.S. soldiers, citizens could wind up fighting there. How do you assess that? Well, if somebody has the desire to send regular troops, that would certainly bring humanity to the brink of very serious global conflict. This is obvious. Do the United States need this? What for? Thousands of miles away from your national territory. Don't you have anything better to do? You have issues on the border, issues with migration, issues with the national debt, more than 33 trillion dollars. You have nothing better to do, so you should fight in Ukraine? Wouldn't it be better to negotiate with Russia? Make an agreement, already understanding the situation that is developing today, realizing that Russia will fight for its interests to the end? Oh, he's good. Did you hear the embedded threat there right at the end? That was a perfectly pitched message right to the heart of the MAGA conservatives in America. Using Tucker Carlson isn't surprising. Using the format of a podcast length interview also isn't surprising. But why has Putin chosen to do this now? Well, both Moscow and Kiev now want to end this war, but neither wants to lose it or be seen to be losing it. As the second anniversary of Putin's invasion of Ukraine approaches and winter abates, it's time for some jaw-jaw before resuming the war war. An estimated 500,000 people have been killed. Accurate data is difficult to come by. Analysts generally agree that Russia has borne 300,000 of those deaths, Ukraine roughly 200,000, mostly men of course. Given Ukraine's population sits around 44 million, that's getting close to one in 100 of the country's men, an horrific human toll. It's fair to assume that Putin never expected Ukraine to put up such a noble fight. He's managed to escape embarrassment thanks to a combination of cunning and good luck. Analysis by the University of Sydney Professor Emeritus Graham Gill, who's an expert on Russia and Soviet history, says early predictions that sanctions would wreck the Russian economy proved to be false. 
In the first year of the war, 2022, the Russian economy shrank by about 2%. Ukrainian economy shrank by 22%, according to some estimates. According to other estimates, it was 45%. But the Russian economy appears to have shrunk uh, by about 2%. Professor Gill says there have been very few food shortages in Russia and certainly no bread lines in the streets. Western firms have exited, but their departure has been an economic stimulus to domestic production in many cases. And where local workers haven't been able to fill the gaps, imports from the global south and China have. As is typical in times of war, unemployment is pretty low, negligible in fact. Oil and gas revenues in 2022 flowed into Russia at almost the same level as before and increased government wartime spending out of Russia's substantial savings reserves from its large sovereign wealth fund have also proven to be an economic bonus. Ironically, decades of sanctions leading up to the war have made the Russian economy less dependent on the West and quite resilient, thank you very much. But Putin's luck may be starting to run out. Unlike 2022, oil and gas reserves halved in 2023. The sovereign wealth fund piggy bank is now more depleted and inflation is on the march. But the message to leave you with is that the economy has not been, has not suffered the sort of uh, consequences that it was thought that it would and that it has been able to sustain the Russian war effort. And I suspect it's likely to be able to do that for some time into the future. Professor Gill says the picture is even more grim for Ukraine. Resources, both in terms of equipment and manpower, hard to come by. The US, Poland and Slovakia are all winding back support for Ukraine and the country is running out of soldiers. Whatever the strategic battlefield analysis, both countries have a lot to lose from a continued fight. And let's face it, brutal war between so-called civilised developed nations in Eastern Europe in the 21st century has really got a childish and foolish ring to it. An example of ego and immaturity and poor strategy that's truly an embarrassment and disgrace to both nations and their leadership and the United Nations, the unbecoming barbarism of uncivilized gangsters. Putin's concerns about NATO expansionism, EU expansionism and Russian isolation used to justify his February invasion in 2022 simply failed to do so. Ukraine as a sovereign state has every right to join any regional bloc it wants to. Russia can line defensive forces along the border in response, if it so wants, but crossing that border is not a right it possesses. Hence, Putin spending half an hour on a questionable, boring history lesson at the start of the interview trying to justify Russia's historic entitlement to modern Ukraine. The BBC says this is familiar ground for Putin. It was an infamous 2021 essay that he wrote called On the Historical Unity of Russians and Ukrainians that first formed his intellectual justification for the invasion. Historians say the litany of claims made by Mr. Putin are nonsense, representing nothing more than a selective abuse of history to justify the ongoing war in Ukraine, the BBC and New Statesman's Europe correspondent, Ido Vok writes. More importantly, Vok notes that regardless of the historical realities, none of Putin's assertions would form a legal justification for his invasion. It seems Putin's overarching main message from his decision to engage the US public through Tucker Carlson is this. We are not expansionist aggressors. 
we invaded Ukraine because we were provoked by breaches of the Minsk Treaty of 2014, and the part of Ukraine that we want is really Russian anyway. Putin wants a negotiated end to this war, and this is him laying out his opening case in that negotiation. We should remain highly skeptical. Make sure you do follow us on X, Twitter, at OtherSideOz, AUS. Uh, we'd love to have your engagement right throughout the week. Tucker Carlson told his viewers after the interview that they'd have to be idiots to think that Russia was expansionist, but he should probably be a lot slower to accept a former KGB agent's sincerity. Russia has recently taken Transnistria from Moldova, South Ossetia and Abkhazia from Georgia, and now he's invaded Ukraine to support the separatists of the self-proclaimed Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics. Like most conflicts, this all comes down to whether you think history lessons tell us much about who is morally entitled to what and why, or whether you think that what really matters is what the majority of people living in any particular region want today. The latter would appear to have more chance of bringing long-term peace, it would seem. Claims of control from faraway cities like Moscow or even Kiev are rarely welcome in any battle for local autonomy. But Putin is trying to make both the historical and the present moment arguments. As always, it's not the rational performance that will carry most weight, but the human and emotional one. And on that front, Putin has chosen the right vehicle in Tucker Carlson to make his lengthy address to America. He's achieved his goal of seeming disarming and non-aggressive, and he's added weight to his own arguments, albeit through a considerably skewed and subjective interpretation of both history and more recent events. Carlson, on the other hand, has demonstrated that however good he might be as a storyteller and presenter, and I can tell you as a professional, he is really, really good, but his long-form interview style is nowhere near challenging enough. While an interviewer will destroy an interview if they constantly interrupt and challenge every point, it's often best to let the interviewee demonstrate their own foolishness sometimes by just staying silent. Polite, firm challenge every now and again is the hallmark of a good interview. And there was plenty for Carlson to challenge that he did not. One high profile conservative who utterly slammed Carlson's performance was UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, probably because he was quite unhappy with this bit of the interview. You're saying you want a negotiated settlement to what's happening in Ukraine. <laughs> right. And we made it. We prepared the huge document in Istanbul that was initialed by the head of the Ukrainian delegation. He affixed his signature to some of the provisions, not to all of it. He put his signature and then he himself said, we were ready to sign it and the war would have been over long ago, 18 months ago. However, Prime Minister Johnson came, talked us out of it, and we missed that chance. Now, in a furious response editorial in the UK's The Daily Mail newspaper, former Prime Minister Johnson said, quote, as every member of the Ukrainian government will confirm from Zelensky down, nothing and no one could have stopped those lion-hearted Ukrainians from fighting for their country, and nothing will. Describing Carlson's performance as bum-sucking civility to a tyrant, Johnson wrote that 
He didn't ask Putin why even now he's using the most brutal means of modern warfare to maim and murder innocent Ukrainian civilians. He didn't take him to task for the torture, the rapes, the blowing up of kindergartens. The Russian leader chose to invade a sovereign and independent European country with no justification other than his arrogant desire to crush that country and rebuild the Soviet Union. He called on conservatives not to fall for Putin's lies. You are the heirs of Ronald Reagan. You cannot make America great again by selling out Ukraine and allowing Putin to use violence to rebuild the Soviet empire. By investing only a fraction of the US defense budget, you can help those valiant Ukrainians to turn the tide, put Putin back in his box, and help secure the Euro-Atlantic area for a generation without risking a single US soldier. It's right for Americans and Europeans to be skeptical of the motives of their own leaders at this time. The tough guy exuberance for a fight shown by the Biden administration, the Biden family's own questionable connections to Ukraine, and the seeming unwillingness to seek a negotiated peace are all cause for concern. But Johnson is ultimately probably right. Conservatives must never make a hero of Vladimir Putin, a man who is every bit the murderous tyrant, communist dictator and centralised state control freak, the very worst of the anti-freedom leftist elites against whom we battle daily. And he's a master manipulator. Perhaps the most exciting thing to see while I was on break was the new Argentinian president, Javier Millet, stand up and defend capitalism to the socialist-leaning annual Control Freak Elite Festival, the World Economic Forum. The WEF is an organisation that's set up to meddle in all sorts of things, led by the greatest self-righteous control freak on the planet, Klaus Schwab. The WEF runs seminars and committees and support programs all around the world all year, funded to the tune of tens of millions of dollars by corporations and governments. This culminates in one really big conference every January in the ski resort of Davos, Switzerland, which typically brings together about 1,500 of the world's top corporate leaders and 1,500 of the world's leading politicians and bureaucrats to, quote, share ideas. The problem is those ideas tend to involve more regulation, more government intervention, and more control by the 3,000 people in the little club. It all sounds lovely, but it's become an industry in its own right. And intervention by government is almost always not the best way to solve problems. So it was really something when the newly elected libertarian president of Argentina, Javier Malay, got up to speak. His is a country whose economy had been utterly destroyed by socialism and whose people have been plummeted from riches and wealth in the mid 20th century into poverty and despair and 90% inflation today by well-meaning socialist policies. The people have finally had enough and they've elected Malay to try to undo the mess. Malay pulls no punches. He campaigned wielding chainsaws as a stunt, symbolising his approach to government. That there should be much, much less of it. My favourite image is this one. Millet and Klaus Schwab striding out on stage together. Schwab having no idea of the scolding that he and all the bureaucrats and technocrats in that room were about to cop. It's for me a great, great honour to welcome Javier 
Today, I'm here to tell you that the Western world is in danger. And it is in danger because those who are supposed to have to defend the values of the West are co-opted by a vision of the world that inexorably leads to socialism and thereby to poverty. Unfortunately, in recent decades, motivated by some well-meaning individuals willing to help others and others motivated by the wish to belong to a privileged caste, the main leaders of the Western world have abandoned the model of freedom for different versions of what we call collectivism. We're here to tell you that collectivist experiments are never the solution to the problems that afflict the citizens of the world. Rather, they are the root cause. Ouch. Collectivism, socialism, is the root cause of the problems in this world, never the solution. That is not a song you hear sung anymore. So loud are the voices of the institutions and corporations and governments who all profit from the interventionist, collectivist model. We know best. We have the solution. You must do as we say say those who have often never had to test whether their ideas bring any value at all in the free market or who can compete and be economically sustainable. When you look at per capita GDP since the year 1800 and until today, what you will see is that after the Industrial Revolution, global per capita GDP multiplied by over 15 times, which meant a boom in growth that lifted 90% of the global population out of poverty. We should remember that by the year 1800, about 95% of the world's population lived in extreme poverty, and that figure dropped to five percent by the year 2020 prior to the pandemic. The conclusion is obvious. Far from being the cause of our problems, free trade capitalism as an economic system is the only instrument we have to end hunger, poverty and extreme poverty across our planet. That is the truth, folks, but you will never hear it on our ABC or reported in our mainstream media. All they care about is fairness and equity. They hate the rich more than they love the poor. They only care about the gap between rich and poor. But the gap doesn't matter if the poor are getting richer. And they have been massively all over the world since the 1800s. But all the control freaks want to focus on is the gap, the inequality, instead of the important thing, which is whether the poor are getting richer. Why is that? Envy? Power? Control? Remember, Davos isn't full of innovative, inspirational rebel entrepreneurs who add value and change the world. Oh, there's a few of them there, maybe. But mostly it's filled with big corporate bureaucrats and big government bureaucrats. People whose big fat salaries depend on taking and spending the money of other people. The empirical evidence is unquestionable. Therefore, since there is no doubt that free enterprise capitalism is uh, superior in productive terms, the left-wing doxa has attacked capitalism, alleging matters of morality saying, uh, that's what the detractors claim, that it's unjust. They say that capitalism is evil because it's individualistic and that collectivism is good because it's altruistic. 
of course, with the money of others. So they therefore advocate for social justice. But this concept, which in the developed world became fashionable in recent times, in my country has been a constant in political discourse for over 80 years. The problem is that social justice is not just, and it doesn't contribute either to the general well-being. Quite on the contrary, it's an intrinsically unfair idea because it's violent. It's unjust because the state is financed through tax and taxes are collected coercively. Javier Malay telling it like it is at the World Economic Forum a few weeks ago. Obviously can't play the whole speech, but it's one not to be missed. So do Google it after today's show and check it out if you haven't seen it in full yet. And you're watching The Other Side on ADH-TV. Some great news. We've got a new app coming. It's going to be a fantastic, easier-to-use app for ADH-TV coming up soon. And when that app launches, we're not going to be putting the show up on YouTube anymore. So uh, we're not in full anyway. So you will have to join us on the app. We'd really love to have you over there. Uh, it's the best way to support us anyway. So prepare for that. Coming up uh, in the weeks ahead, we'll keep you posted on it. We've challenged on this show right from the start the idea that the events in Washington on January the 6th, 2021 could be called an insurrection. The word's been used so many times by the media here in Australia and in the US that it'd be crazy to suggest otherwise, right? I mean, the Democrats held a congressional inquiry into the insurrection right before the 2022 midterm elections in the US. It was broadcast on every major network in primetime, a made-for-TV production. Well, a group of Republicans, now that they control the House of Representatives, have decided to introduce a resolution to the House declaring that former President Trump did not engage in an insurrection. A congressman from Arizona by the name of Eli Crane slammed attempts to remove Donald Trump from the ballot based on this insurrection lie and really gave it to reporters for their coverage of January 6. Watch this. You know what I love about this, watching uh, where President Trump is at in the polls? <laughs> I love it because it shows the American people don't trust you guys. And they shouldn't, because you guys are full of it and everybody knows it. There's a few honest journalists in this town, but there are very few and far between. You know how I know it wasn't an insurrection? Because he hasn't been charged with insurrection. And we can all see by the lawfare how he's facing up over 700 years in jail right now, how they've tried to destroy this man, destroy his businesses, that if they felt they had an inkling of a chance of convicting President Trump of jaywalking or insurrection, they would absolutely charge him. You know how else I know it's not an insurrection? Because this is the first insurrection in the history of the world where the people that were a part of it were unarmed. It's pretty hard to do if you walk around and see how many individuals are carrying firearms. All right. Last thing I want to say about how I know it's not an insurrection is because I actually listened to the words of the president. If you're trying to stoke an insurrection, you don't tell the people listening, hey, I want you to go over there peacefully and patriotically. All right? This is not an insurrection. What it is, is a party that's scared to death of this man because he's America first, and he's shown time and time again he's willing to bust up the swamp, and he continues to beat you like a drum. That's what this is really about. Come to demand that Congress do the right thing and only count the electors who have been lawfully slated, lawfully slated. I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. Today we will see whether Republicans stand strong for integrity 
of our elections, but whether or not they stand strong for our country. Peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. A group of Republicans gathered last week to announce that new resolution. Congressman Matt Gates from Florida said, while the vast majority of people who protested at the White House on January 6 were peaceful, there were a couple of bad apples. There were people who were violent at that riot, and they should not have been. But that is a very different thing than declaring that President Trump engaged in an insurrection. He wasn't here. He said he wanted people to be peaceful and patriotic. And like, I never even really, like insurrection isn't a term we interacted with frequently before getting to Congress. Like you never heard about the insurrection on the Little League board or at the local Kiwanis club, but because it has this legal significance, it's been lashed to President Trump unfairly. And that's what we're trying to remediate. <laughs> Conservative commentators Ben Shapiro and Dave Rubin got together for a look at the year ahead this week to talk about the US presidential election coming up in November and foreign policy generally. Shapiro says while he understands the tendency of conservatives these days to want to be more careful about what sort of battles America gets itself into overseas, it's impossible to think that America can just pull out of getting involved in stuff altogether. I understand the, the impulse to suggest, like, why are we involved over here? And you know what? I think that's a great question to ask in, in all circumstances. Why are we involved? And somebody should then give an explanation of why we're involved that involves not just some sort of highfalutin moral language, but also involves, like, hard, real American interests. Like, why are we involved in this place? But to pretend that America does not have interests abroad at all or that every, every potential deterrence is an act of escalation toward war is, is I think, uh, a giant misread of American foreign policy. Do you, do you blame some of the, that Tucker America first energy on the fact that so many Republicans helped get us to some of these stupid wars over the last three decades, that that was going to be the result? That wasn't going to be much of a thought out policy. It would just be an impulse policy, sort of as you're describing. I mean, that, that's usually how politics works, right? It's actually mostly a series of impulses by the voter, which is why you'll see the American voters swivel wildly from I don't want to be involved in this area of the world to we need to go in there and wreck everyone. Right? And we swing wildly from one side to the other. Right? We, we, what do we, what, what, let's get out of Iraq. We need to get out of Iraq. Like right now, we have no business in Iraq. ISIS beheads somebody and we're like, okay, let's go wreck those bastards. Right? Like the, 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 the swivel from one to the other is very, you, I mean, it's, it's pretty typical of American foreign policy, actually. Um, and so there's nothing new about that. But that doesn't mean that that actually makes for a smart deterrent policy. And one of the big problems with deterrence as a policy is that it's literally impossible to see the what would have been if not. Right. Right. If you if you successfully deter a country from going to war, then you don't you, by necessity, you don't see the war that would have materialized in the absence of the deterrence. And so, I, listen, I, I totally understand the impulse. I certainly understand the, the reaction to the war in Iraq and its failure. I understand the reaction to the lack of a, a functional plan in Afghanistan. Like all of that is totally understandable. It's also possible to swivel too far in, in the other direction in terms of isolationism, right? The answer to, to full-scale interventionist Wilsonian neoconservatism, I don't think is isolationism. I think that it's foreign policy realism. So for example, we have to look at every conflict and say, is this a conflict where we have an interest? Asking the question as to why we should be involved in a place is fine, good, and useful. But when there's an answer, there actually is an answer. And to pretend that there's never an answer or that everything that happens in the world is purely because it's blowback because of American policy in, in, in a region. And that if we just kind of got our fingers out of the pie, everything would be hunky-dory, I think is uh, looking at the world through rose-colored glasses.
Right. So with that in mind, what, what do you think the U.S. policy should be right now as it relates to Israel? I mean, the policy with regard to Israel should be unshackle Israel and provide them the armaments they need to completely defeat Hamas and then to establish some sort of stable regime in the Gaza Strip that can educate children in ways that are not wildly anti-Semitic, that provide safety and security for the citizens of Gaza so that they're not threatened by Hamas every five seconds, and then actually cultivate a, a movement toward moderation in the Gaza Strip. That's because it turns out that leaving them alone and allowing Hamas to run the place was the biggest disaster in Israel's history. The same thing is probably true in large swaths of, of the West Bank. I mean, the reality is that, for example, 20% of Israel's population is Arab. The Israeli Arab population is moderate. Many of them fight in the army. Right? They, 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 this notion that this is simply a pure religious conflict and that there can be no such thing as good governance making a difference is obviously untrue. That's Ben Shapiro speaking on the Dave Rubin Show this week. And that's all we have time for this week on The Other Side. Please like and share and tell your friends about the show. We really need your support. And that is the best way that you can support us and help us keep the media landscape in Australia more diverse politically and have more diversity of opinion, the only diversity that should really matter. And join us on ADH-TV at adh.tv for all our great content. We've got Alexandra Marshall, Daisy Cousins, Spectator TV, Nick Cater, Fred Paul, David Flint, you can download our app on your phone. Just search up ADH-TV on Google Play or the Apple App Store. Or you can watch our live stream on YouTube at any time. There's heaps of ways to find us. And we will catch you next weekend for The Other Side. We drop a show every Friday night at 8pm. I'm Damien Curry. Bye for now.